everybody. Um, this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy and comedy podcast. Uh, I'm Eric Kaplan. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a, I'm a philosophy uh, a PhD, and I'm also a, a Hollywood writer, but I'm not a Hollywood writer right now because I'm on strike. Um, Taylor, who are you? <laughs> I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I work on European philosophy, mostly continental European, so-called. And it's our pleasure today to be joined by Andy Richter. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Hi, Taylor. Hey, How are yeah. you? Nice to meet you. Um, so, so Andy's an old friend of mine, and a and a. Uh, uh, I should have asked him what I, how I should have introduced him, but, but he's an, an actor and, and, a, and a writer and a television producer. Um, and on top of that, uh, he's a very thoughtful man. Um, and his name is Richter, which means judge. But he That's named right. his daughter Mercy, which oh. is just mercy and that's sort of different from judgment and that's why i wanted him to help me out because the terrifying question that's terrifying me today and i should have said that the reason why this show is called terrifying questions and how not to be terrified by them is that we look at terrifying questions and unsettling questions and we try to use thought and and honesty to get through to a place where we're not so terrified by them um and, and the question today is um is it bad to judge people mm-hmm um, and that question terrifies me because I kind of think the answer is yes. I think it's probably as bad to judge people. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm not sure what to do about that because I sort of feel like I often have to judge people. Like I need to decide, should, can I trust that person? Uh, you know, is that person going to do what they said? Uh, or they, they said they were going to do what they did and then they didn't. They did something terrible. What am I going to do to keep them from doing it again? And yet I feel it makes sense to me that it's bad to judge people. So what do you guys think? I need some help here. You want to kick it off, Andy? Sure. Well, you know, there is the uh, golden rule, yeah, which is, right. a you know, sort of an underpinning of Western morality, I guess, uh, which is, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think that that kind of has an implicit non-judgment to it. You know, like if you want others to do unto you, you wouldn't want people to judge your behavior. So I think one of the one of the underpinnings of it is, well, then you shouldn't judge other people's behavior. Mm -hmm. But I would say, how does one live a critical life without making decisions? And I mean, value decisions about certain behaviors and certain ways of living without judgment. Well, what's an example? Well, I mean, there, you know shoplifting mm -hmm. some people are poor and they shoplift in order to get food shoplifting is, is thou shalt not steal stealing is wrong you are taking something that is not yours yeah we can't have a we can't have a society where i mean i guess we could but where you just take whatever you want mm -hmm. and that's a judgment that's mm -hmm. saying like you know like to take something is bad but there are people that that take things out of a necessity and there isn't, it, you know, and I think that the sort of like badness of it is ameliorated by circumstance. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But in my life, I think judgment is something I keep to myself a lot, but I have to judge internally in order to adjust my position in the world and the way that I should behave, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe your golden rule, you know, so, so you used to play football in the Midwest, right? I did. 
were you exposed to Christianity at all in your upbringing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And what do you think of that? Well, it was always a very kind of mild Christianity. It all, well, I'll t what I think of it, especially when it comes down to judge not, yeah, is that there's so much judgment in Christianity. Mm. But do you think, do you think Christianity would be better if they followed the teachings of their Lord that you're not supposed to judge? Yeah, but it all falls apart if everybody's not on the same page. Right. And willing to maintain that same level, you know? Right. Because one of the things I was thinking was that, um, as I recall, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong, Taylor, because um, I'm the least Christian of the three here, maybe, <laughs> um, is um, at least in terms of, of upbringing, um, that Jesus says, judge that ye not be judged. In other words, he's invoking the golden rule. Yeah. And it's saying, like, if you don't want to be judged for committing adultery, don't judge this woman for committing adultery. But you could turn around and you could say, I'm fine with being judged for committing adultery. I'm not going to do it. And therefore, I can judge her because she did it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just thinking about what would happen in that parable when he says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And somebody in there thought, well, I'm without sin. And so hauls off and casts the stone and figures, well, I'm taking the advice seriously, right? But there does seem to be an, an implicit premise being appealed to that nobody is without sin. Uh, yeah. And, and that that's sounds how it works plausible out. to me. Yeah. Do you think that's plausible, Andy, that no one is without sin? Uh, yeah. Everybody has sin. But you know, this thing about don't judge, the thing that comes, it's in Paul and it comes from the Psalms too. The original version, of course, is judge not because it's God who will judge. Yeah, that's what I thought. It, you, when your enemy comes to you and is naked, you clothe him. When he's hungry, you feed him. You give him cold water to drink. Uh, and what Paul says after that, right after that, maybe that's in the original Psalm too, is that for by doing so, you will be pouring hot coals on his head. And what that means is that God will have his vengeance. So I really think in the case of Christianity, there's always a comforting idea that somebody else is doing the judging, so we don't have to. Uh -huh. um, so it's not the claim that there are no bad people and there are no good people. It's the claim that we shouldn't be the one to make that distinction. I think that's, you know, I actually think even though I was just painting it as a kind of hypocrisy, I think there's something right and good about it, which is that you are not necessarily the one to do the judging, because who are you to be judging? You know, I was really struck a few years ago, I hadn't ever read Anna Karenina, and I read Anna Karenina, and I was really struck by the motto that Tolstoy puts at the very beginning, that God says, uh, vengeance is mine. And I thought, wow, this is a statement, that's supposed to be the summary statement about the point of Anna Karenina? Because she, she, she comes to a very bad ending, and the idea is that she gets what she deserves. I thought, that's inhuman. But I think the humane reading of it, I think what Tolstoy must have meant was, don't judge her, because vengeance belongs to God, not you. And so I think that's the kind of humane side of it, which is really to keep your judgment in check. And that's the point, I think, the good point to take away from the parable about the woman caught in adultery, which is you're not the one to throw a stone. And when they all sulk off ashamed, he says to her, and I don't condemn you. Mm -hmm. And so he's not judging her. So I think that's actually very powerful, morally powerful. It's a check on judgment because it's very easy to judge. But God aside, even though God is definitely part of the picture— um, and hell and heaven and all those reward system is built into it. I think the good side of it is that you need some humility. Okay, but I'm still I'm still very torn on this one, and I'm not just being kayfabe. I actually am kind of torn on this yeah. one because it strikes me that um, the idea that we shouldn't judge people because we ourselves are fallible makes an awful lot of sense. But it also seems like 
all I talk about with my friends is judging the behavior of the other friends. Cause I don't know why, cause I can't stop it. Cause it seems like it's, do you ever do that? Do you ever like, I mean, oh. the, the misogynistic word for it is gossip, but to talk with friend Absolutely. A that and why do we do that? Because that's the kind of apes that we are. <laughs> but well, I think it's a feature of this particular kind of ape is that we love to shit talk everyone around us. I, I just think that it's kind of, and that it's not. Do you think it would be better using the ape talk? Sounds like you think it might be better if we didn't. Do you think that's true? My point is just that I think it's somewhat unavoidable. Right. But I, I want to raise a different point. Is it a bad thing? Like, like you know, like like scratching mosquito bites. It's very tempting. Yeah. It's much better not to do it. They, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, they go away in like an hour if you don't scratch them. And they could be there all summer and get scabby if you do scratch them. Right. So is judging our friend's behavior like scratching mosquito bites? Is it something that hard as it is, we should avoid it? I think it's unavoidable and actually good. So, you think it's good. Why is it good? Well, because I think Andy said something like this a few minutes ago. To maintain a kind of critical attitude to even yourself, you have to be able to form evaluative judgments about other people. I mean, again, literally, if nobody did this, there would be no justice in the world. Nobody would ever be held accountable for what they did. No one would ever be blamed. No one ever would be outraged and angry at bad behavior. I mean, so I just think it's so constitutive of our moral and you know normative sense of the order of the world that there's just it the idea that there could be no and we mean negative critical blaming kind of judgment i'm not sure we can even conceive of that it's a kind of utopian fantasy but i think the the way to zoom in on the question uh in a terrifying form would be something like why first of all is it so easy to judge and why is it so dangerous and what kinds of judgments are good and what kinds of judgments are bad or what kind of judging practices. I think there's some practices of judging which are fundamental to our nature, not only our scratching the mosquito bites kind of nature, but uh, just our way of understanding ourselves. But there's a lot of other kinds of ways of blaming and judging that are very insidious and dangerous that need to be checked. Let's put on the table an example of judging we all like, and then we'll put on the table an example of judging we don't like. And let's see if we can figure out what the difference is between them. Yeah. What, does that sound reasonable? Sure. Okay, what's an example of judging you like? Well, uh, you gave I, the shoplifter one, but I, I kind of like one which maybe is a little closer to home since sure. I haven't shoplifted in, you know, since I was nine. <laughs> um, well, say we make a judgment about someone that's negative all the time. Uh, you know, someone that is constantly saying terrible things about people, and we all say behind our back that person is a negative person uh-huh. that person that person is is spreading ill will and that person is uh you know counterproductive to us all moving forward right i mean that because also to the aspect of judgment that i always because i you know growing up in a small town i was acute went from an early age and i think it was just being smart and verbal was you're so judgmental you're so judgmental oh, but, what was an example of something you said that the small town people thought was judgmental uh like a teacher's bad at teaching okay <laughs> you know like there was a teacher that wasn't very good at teaching okay. or you know uh 
you know, just somebody was a jerk, you know, like there's somebody that everyone kind of liked. And I would say, no, that person is actually. And how and what, how so did nice. you form that judgment? What was jerky about this person? Well, I would say if it was somebody that was kind of, well, I would say insecure or uh, insincere, okay. like a person that was nice to everyone, but was actually quite unkind and selfish okay and to protect his identity let's call him Mistopheles weasel pants okay so, so this mr weasel pants yes what what was the thing that he did like i want you to call him to mind like what's the thing like a lie that he told well okay um just to constantly be ingratiating themselves to other people buttering up other people but also then kind of spreading ill like i said spreading ill will about other people mm -hmm. okay all uh, uh, duplicitous mm -hmm. all, whoever they're in the presence of they're always flattering you know yeah. but have all kinds of terrible things to say about other people okay and you what age were you when you formed this job i would say this is in high school so you were school. you were, and you were captain of the football team no, no was, you were on the football team. i was on the football, you're on the football team. team you're really like you're like my uh, my publicist here <laughs> yeah I am. you're uh, rewriting history <laughs> but my point is you were a member of the community that people cared about you weren't a pariah no not at all no i was i was a popular well-liked uh member of and high you school said, society i think mistopheles weasel pants is actually full of crap yeah he pretends to be nice but he isn't really and yeah. who said to you you're being awful judgmental young andy uh people would you know it would be a thing of like well they're so nice uh -huh. they're so nice and they didn't really want to go and to see the other side of the coin i think there's a you know there was a drive to keep everything nice and friendly and and sweet, mm -hmm. right? You know, yeah, right. And my well, and and the fact I uh, the reason I brought it up from high school is that to be called judgmental, we take it to to mean negative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But to say that it's a beautiful day is a judgment, right? And if you say, you know, everybody says that um, whatever Horatio Lizard hat. Everyone doesn't like Horatio Lizard Hat because he's so crabby. But I'll tell you one thing about Horatio. He'll say the same thing about you when you're in the room and yeah. when you're not in the room. Yeah. And I, young Andy football player, I applaud that. Yeah. So you're you're exercising your judgment both in condemning Mistopheles and 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 praising Horatio. Yeah. Um, so that's a good example of a of I think it's that's a good form of judgment. I think it's also kind of necessary because otherwise. It almost reminds me of Mad Magazine making fun of commercials from the 70s. And it's like, isn't it judgmental to say that the people selling us soap are lying to us? No, <laughs> it's pretty important. Yeah. You know, it's a pretty important. It's media literacy. Yeah. Um, what about calling out bullies and, you know, um, holding people responsible for violence and brutality and corruption i mean there's so many examples of where judgment is absolutely necessary and crucial it's almost hard to know where to begin but, but what worries me i mean a lot of things worry me about the pro-judgmental attitude yeah. but let's take a little break yes we should and then we'll come exactly. back and we'll talk about very it. good Okay, well, we're back from our break uh, with Andy Richter, uh, who's come to help us out. His name means judge or, or judger. It does. And, and uh, we're trying to figure out this conundrum, which is that judging seems necessary for us to 
even try to be humans and try to navigate our way through the world and protect the people we care about from from bullies and fraudsters and hypocrites of all kinds. And yet, on the other hand, there seems to be a pretty strong tradition, which which I and maybe it's because my dad was a defense attorney, but but I've sort of imbibed, which is that there's a dark side to judgment. Yeah, that's true. Uh, what are those people getting at? And, and it's an it's an odd group, which includes well, like my dad, but he's not a famous philosopher, but like Jesus Christ, very George W. Bush's favorite philosopher, and <laughs> and Nietzsche, who thought that when we're judging, we're we're sort of implicitly just getting off on the power dynamic of being able to judge someone. Yeah. And Freud thought that, and Foucault. Although Freud and Freud and Foucault, I suppose, are both sort of Nietzscheans in that regard, that they're like, you're getting off on something. When you're judging someone, you're enjoying the fact that you have uh you're you're gaining some social capital on that. Yeah, I think um, following Nietzsche, they're both very suspicious of the moral attitude. Yeah, and Bernard Williams. So they're all of them, all of them are like, Nietzsche, you got something right. Um so so could you talk us through, Taylor, what, what the problem is with judging? Well, I think for certainly for Foucault, but I think for a lot of these uh critics of judgment, they see the way in which it's used as an instrument of power that you can hurt people and control people and be manipulative through judgment and through imposing your judgment. And it's a kind of duplicity. It's a kind of deception because you talk them into feeling bad about themselves and then you can manipulate them. That's certainly what Nietzsche thought Christianity was all about. I'm not quite sure what to say about Freud on that point, but he is, he, given that he's trying to be a scientific psychologist, he wants to bracket moral questions generally. And so he's interested in the psychology from a disengaged moral point of view, roughly. So you can actually, because he thinks, like Nietzsche, that that's going to cloud your vision. Foucault is the one who's most sensitive to the ways in which all kinds of elaborate sorts of systems of knowledge and ways of talking and representing the world by doctors and psychologists and social workers and teachers. And I mean, he thinks it's kind of pervasive in the society, which is extremely normative, normalizing, saturated with implicit judgments about what's normal and abnormal and better and worse is a huge kind of system of manipulation and coercion. So he really wants to attune us to that, to see how how the danger is not just in individual actions, individual people explicitly pointing the finger and saying bad or wrong, but the whole way you're taught to think about yourself in terms of your grades and your sexual orientation and your desires, that keeps a constant monitor on your behavior. And Foucault thinks in a way it's sort of deliberately designed to do that, to keep you kind of in shackles. Um, so he thinks that's really insidious. Can we think of an example of that? Because it's all kind of like oh, yeah. up in the air right now. Yeah, think about all the tests you have to take. I mean, exams and uh, not just in school, but I mean, grades do work this way. I mean, I have to say, I always tell my students when I teach Foucault, I have to give you grades. But think about how manipulative grades are, because the whole point of them is to make you self-conscious about where you are on a scale so that you can sort of be constantly monitoring your behavior so that nobody else has to do it for you. So you've got this internal policing. Well, Andy, so so you're a creative person, you're an actor, you're an improv person. Do you find that judgment and self-judgment is like is like harshing your bliss? No, because otherwise it's a slipper it's a slippery slope into yeah. uh megalomania and and mm -hmm. and sociopathy. Yeah. I mean, you know, if that's the case, then a sociopath is like so blissful. Yeah. Well, I don't want <laughs> I don't want to name I don't want to name any names. 
But we know people who have brought a lot of joy to the audience. Yes. And they're megalomaniac sociopaths. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and somehow you feel like maybe those two things go together, that they're just like, I'm going to start talking like this. And like a normal person would be like, that's annoying. Yeah. Stop doing that. But I'm going to just keep doing that. And they just keep doing that. And they're really annoying. And yet, and then they sort of break through to like, wow, that person is so annoying. It's actually funny. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, that, and that becomes their career to be this annoying, funny person. And if they judge themselves even a little, they would have realized, cut it out. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, but I mean, you could, and you could do that with artists, you know, like yeah. you could go, you know, every genius was ignoring, I mean, most every mm, genius mm. was ignoring the norms of the day yeah, yeah, and yeah. was doing something that they would, that they understood to be unmarketable yeah, or yeah. unsaleable. Yeah. Uh, so you do need to have some kind of bulletproofed idea of yourself if you're going to be a creative person. Yeah, that's interesting. But if you're an actuary that works in an office and has three kids and neighbors, I don't think that you get the same kind of freedom. But you know what's going to happen? That's, probably, that's, very, but, that's very, you know, like that's, what do you that's think, kind of elitist for me. Well, what as do you a, think about this you know, worry? We I'm, creative people get to be that way, but not the normies. Here's the thing that I worry. If we set up a society where you're allowed to be a complete asshole if you're in the creative business. Yeah, yeah. And you're not otherwise. We kind of have, what, to be honest. What will gradually happen? <laughs> in, in that, who will gradually <laughs> uh, migrate into the creative field? Yes. <laughs> where, where you have license to do right, you right. Um, Silvio Berlusconi, I am a poet. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of worry about that. Actually, somebody once told me a funny thing about Ireland, uh, which is slightly related, which is that in Ireland. You don't need to pay tax if you're an artist. Oh, wow. And in America, you don't need to pay tax if you're involved in religion. Uh -huh. So in Ireland, the, the profession of artist is is thick with scam artists and grifters uh -huh. who just don't want to pay tax and have identified themselves as artists. That sounds familiar. And similarly, in America, the profession of religion is thick with scam artists yeah, and grifters yeah. who are like, aha. So, so I'm wondering yeah. if we actually set up the idea that you have the license to do whatever the hell you want in the arts... That seems risky. <laughs> Here, here's a here's a kind of proposal. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and be as judgmental, you know, up to a point, and just figure the really thick-skinned, maybe sociopaths or narcissists who really have some robust original thing, they'll be the ones who can put up with that. After all, they can take it, right? So let them take it. Oh, I don't like that proposal. Let at them all. take a little because bit. Because what if there's a great a great artist who's thin-skinned and a mediocre artist who's thick-skinned? Well, I mean, judgment up to a point. At the point that they really are obnoxious, annoying, offensive, you let them know. And I'm sorry if so. There's some victims there. I don't mean. And if they say I don't care. Yeah, if they because a lot of them will. Welcome, a lot of the ones I think past the velvet rope. That maybe that Andy was referring to. A lot of those people, after all, got a lot of that shit, you know, from everybody around them, and then persisted and so on. I mean, think of all the people who early on were constantly saying Bob Dylan couldn't sing. That was even when I was young, that was the standard sort of thing. Well, he can't sing, but... And now, almost everybody I've ever spoken to acknowledges he's a great, great singer. So he changed the standards by which it's judged, and he had to listen to that. Neil Young has had to listen to it 
well, their whole yeah. career. And yeah. um, that's they're not alone. I mean, Van Gogh. How many mi- Van Gogh never sold a painting. How many microseconds has Neil Young spent worrying about that? Well, he probably isn't. <laughs> he, it doesn't bother him very much. Apparently, I don't think. It no, bothers. I don't think it and ever good did. for him. I don't think a lot bothers him. Exactly, and good for him, right? So aside can, from MP3s, yeah. <laughs> so right, so he can. In other words, okay. So here's what I'm thinking about now. I'm thinking that there's actually. Two things going on, maybe to separate, and Nietzsche is a good example. One is well, there's the Foucault stuff, which is what triggered all this a minute ago. Which is Foucault hates the kind of institutionalized mechanisms of manipulation and judgment that seep into everybody's consciousness, right? But on the other hand, it's a good thing to be able to be self-critical, so that you don't let yourself become insufferable and lazy. And does Foucault think it's a good thing to be self-critical? I thought he's sort of skeptical of like. That's almost like letting the enemy into your gates. Like. I don't mean to attribute that to him. What I mean is when I think about Nietzsche, because he's taken Foucault has taken over Nietzsche's critique of Christianity and applied it to a lot of mm-hmm. modern society. Like even if you're an yeah, atheist, he's, he's concerned with like social workers. He exactly. says the social worker thinks he's helping the family get you know get normal, but he's actually part of this big machine yeah. that's making it so enforcing that conformity enforcing, enforcing conformity and, 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 and creating and biopower yeah and an internalized kind of police mechanism in your own mind that's the idea yeah. but that is definitely a, and that seems uncool and i think that's uncool for everybody not just for artists because i think if we're losing um the let's imagine a hypothetical world where the enforcement mechanisms of art were enough to get bob dylan to shut up you're like, shut up, Bob Dylan, go home. It's not our society, but maybe like Vienna in 1905 or something. Yeah. Shut up, Bob Dylan, you can't sing, go home. So that would have been a bad society. We would have lost the cool uh, reality and authenticity of Bob Dylan. But I think even if you're not a public artist, you're just some weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> I think who has no interest in producing records. I think the society that says to that weirdo, you better stop being so weird is losing well, it's hurting the weirdo. I agree. And it's losing the the sort of possibilities of life that the weirdo's weirdness opens up for us, oh, even if that person completely. is not trying to publish records. No, but I agree completely. I mean, I think we should let leave that person alone. Especially, leave the weirdo alone. Yeah, especially because if, if they're harmless, you know, I mean, if they're not also... Yeah, a, that, well, that's the key. Yeah, yeah. If they're harmless. Absolutely. That's right. But none of us is harmless. Yeah, no, well, there's degrees, right? I am. He's harmless. He's relatively harmless. I mean, I mean, this person isn't also going around beating people up and stealing stuff and whatever. I mean... Yeah, Foucault was a little bit of a bad boy, right? Because among the people who are harmless, he included a guy who, in the French countryside, who liked to have sex with young children. I know. His judgment was always not always spot on. Okay, okay. okay so let's, yeah, let's like, not be on that side. Well, okay, but, he um, was a bit of an anarchist. What about the lovable rogue? Can you think of any lovable rogue, Sandy, who you're like, they absolutely break the rules, but I'm okay with that? Or are you down on lovable rogues? Oh, well, there, no, there's plenty of them. Uh, Martin Luther uh is a big one <laughs> wait a minute the 16th century uh jesus christ the 16th century martin luther you don't mean martin luther king jr <laughs> yeah, yeah no i mean Mar- i mean yeah i mean the original i see uh martin luther 1.0 um <laughs> you know no every rebel is a every rebel that we know about mm-hmm. fits that mold because they were lovable enough to be remembered and to and for their ideas to have taken hold and that and that this actually brings up something because we've been talking about a creative person and whether they get to be creative yeah which is there's like some marketplace stuff happening in there Mm -hmm. too there's commercial things happening and i don't even and i mean it's not as if martin luther 
was running a business, but his ideas sold in right. in in just in a in a sort of easy parlance. And that is an area where that makes me queasy. Like what? Where just that if something and I mean, I just said it. If there if there's a rebel that we know about, it's because they worked. Mm-hmm. They, we we deemed them good. Um, I mean, aside from you know, obviously history's greatest, greatest villains, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, but I mean he was considered well, depending on out from our but side. That's true, but you say the the uh, the founding fathers were rebels. Yes, against the king. Yes, yeah. but I mean, but you know, I mean, Hitler was a rebel there <laughs> for was, a while, yeah. you know for a while. Oh, this um, is the thing that totally annoyed me for a while, which was the mantle of punk rock. Yes, was seized by the alt right. Yes, they're uh, still doing yeah. it. They're still doing. They're still. It. Doing and they just it. say we have the courage to say that. Um, Gay people should be beaten up. Yeah, why does anyone thumb in the eye of, con- of popular convention? Yeah, it's uh, like yeah, but it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing because um, why is it a tricky thing? Well, well, it's a tr- it's a tricky thing because that's also the the um, that's the mantra or the pop philosophy of Silicon Valley. Yeah, which is move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. Come in, break the rules. Maybe I literally break the law, like I believe uh, Uber did. Mm-hmm. But if you succeed in in being forgiven by the market it'll sort itself out it'll sort itself out and sometimes it doesn't but but a lot of people they look at they look at this horrible um woman who did theranos yeah and lied mm-hmm. to people and said that she could do all this stuff but with a drop of blood which she couldn't uh, elizabeth holmes holmes yeah elizabeth holmes so she's this horrible fraudster and yet a lot of people are like she's the same as steve jobs it's just her thing happened not to work out but the notion of running around telling people, I'm going to do this great thing that's just going to change the world, give me money, is it's a little bit like Bob Dylan. It's a little bit like, I'm going to fake it till I make it. I'm going to cr- come up with this crazy new way of doing things. And the fact that that has become institutionalized and that has become a cliche makes me worry about that's a really cynical, I feel like we ought to do better. That's a really cynical ideology, though, the idea. I mean, it's a kind of ends justifies the means. But how is it different from the... Just the view that, like, if you try and change the culture and you succeed, you're a hero. And if you don't, you're forgotten. Well, there's pl- Isn't it the same consequentialist reasoning? There's plenty of ambiguity what? in there, and, the, and it's a blurry line. But Bob Dylan and Elizabeth Holmes were definitely on different sides of a blurry line because she was not only fanatical and driven by this entrepreneurial ideology, she was also kind of an incompetent manager. Well, she's raised more money in her life than I have. Uh, but it was a huge disaster waiting to happen. There was no way that Which, was going to okay. work because it was fraudulent. Yeah, she, it was lies. It was a fraud from the beginning. And the yeah, comparison with okay. Bob Dylan is wrong because he was a great singer from the beginning and people were just wrong about him. And it took a long time for people to sort of realize that because standards change. Well, if you have the card, Taylor, that enables you to know who's great and who isn't and who's lying and who isn't, then your life is easy. Of course, but there's, of course, nobody <laughs> But I don't that. think we possess no, that we card, don't. do we? No, we don't. All right, all right. So there's plenty of ambiguity. But look, I was going to say before that the self-critical thing that's important is that people who also manage to 
succeed and change the standards on which they're judged and so on and so on. It's not that they've just freed themselves from the shackles of external judgment. It's that also they've internalized their own sort of compass sense of what works and what doesn't and what's right and wrong and good. So they're often very conscientious when it comes to the quality of their own work. Uh-huh. And that's a kind of that's a kind of self-criticism that's not the same as just internalizing what the social workers and teachers and priests and nuns and have told you. Yeah. That's something that's that's driven by your dedication to your art or to your task. Yeah. And that kind of self-criticism is really important. You know, Nietzsche it's really an interesting case because he says things on both sides of this. He's really mm-hmm. on to the tension between these ideas because he hates the conscientious, moralistic Christian religion. Uh, but at the same time, he thought that kind of self-discipline was one of the most important things you could possibly have. And I, I read this biography of him. You know, Julian Young wrote this big, interesting biography of Nietzsche when he was in school, which would have been equivalent to either high school or college when he was in whatever that age is, 18 or 19. He would do all-nighters. And the way he would stay up all night studying and reading all night long was to put his foot in a bucket of ice water so that he would stay awake. And I thought, wow, well, that's pretty disciplined. I mean, that's not just free spirit, do whatever I want, feel unconstrained by anybody's judgment about me. That's like, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to... I never would have done that myself. I still wouldn't. But he thought it was very important to have your own kind of compass that's not tyrannized by other people's judgments. But uh, but he also thought, and here's the passage I mentioned before uh, to Eric when I was thinking about what could we read for this episode. But I wanted to say, as much as Nietzsche sometimes seems to be very judgmental, I mean, he's maybe the most judgmental philosopher ever, extremely opinionated and highly critical. He's got opinions about everything, and he's beating you over the head with him all over the place. But there's a point in the gay science where he asks these questions and gives these answers. And uh, so first of all, what does your conscience say? And his answer is, you should become who you are. So that's freedom. Where lie your greatest dangers? He says, in compassion. Mm. We can come back to that, maybe. Whom do you call bad? He who always wants to put people to shame. That's what he thinks is bad. And what is most human to you to spare someone shame? Really? Interesting. And what's the seal of having become free? No longer to be ashamed before oneself. So he's really hostile to shame and shaming and constraining other people's freedom. But notice he says he's not a big fan of compassion. What's the greatest danger? In compassion. Why is compassion a danger? Well, it's because if you're really compassionate and you're really obsessed with compassion, you will be utterly intolerant of other people's violations of, um, you know, their failure to be compassionate, to be cruel. And then you will, you will, <laughs> you will lose this sense of letting people you know, be themselves and so on, because you'll be highly judgmental. So it's a very complicated mix of things, but I think it's just right for our topic, which is yeah, the thing he prizes most is relieving people or sparing someone the feeling of shame. That's the greatest thing you can possibly do, and yet we can't help but, of course, shame people when we judge them. So yeah. it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, there's no way to draw the line perfectly clearly yeah. a priori, but... And it also seems to be a semantic issue in that how does one spare someone with sh- from shame without having some compassion? Yeah, right. Exactly. It is compassion. You know? it's a very, exactly right. Yeah. He's, he seems to be talking about a kind of compassion he likes, 
which is sparing people from shame, especially if it's if you you know it's unnecessary. Yeah. Why go around before Bob Dylan is a big star when he's just in the coffee houses and sort of singing and so on? Why go around sort of saying, "Ah, you can't sing." I mean, <laughs> just cool it. You know, let's listen. Well, yeah. but yeah. but hang on a second, Nietzsche. <laughs> um, <laughs> like you put up a sign and you say, "We're gonna let folk singers sing tonight," and you have like two hours you're gonna have to tell some people no of course of course yeah okay and maybe maybe some of them will feel ashamed that they showed up in new york saying that they were going to be a successful folk singer and they showed up at our mic and we told them go home like what what does nietzsche what does nietzsche want to do about that because he also seems to think like you know he doesn't think if i don't know ancient greek i can interpret the Greeks, right? <laughs> right. right. No, he's not. You he's know. not going to cry over that situation. He Nietzsche happened to think competition was great because it actually generates okay. excellence. What so. did he think about fat shaming? He was a pretty slender man, right? <laughs> I, <see. laughs> I don't remember that coming up in any of in it didn't come up. Zarathustra, okay. but he <laughs> kind of fatties. He has nasty things to say about women. There's a fair bit of misogyny, a fair bit of bad mouthing women. So he didn't seem to mind that. I don't think he was really into punching down, though. You know, his his targets are mostly established Christian bourgeois. You know, he's punching up mostly, I think, get relative to the time period in which he's living. In a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, it's all about mediums. It's all about not letting compassion make it so that you're just some sort of rug that gets walked over yeah. through life. But... You know, you shouldn't walk on others. You know, I mean, there, there's kind of still it's a most of these, especially the hypotheticals, they're a case by case basis. You know, we bring up Bob Dylan, but then we could also, you know, bring up somebody. I, I can't, you know, let's bring up, say, like uh, Jerry Lewis and the Playboys. <laughs> like, I don't think that they should have had a musical career. <laughs> you know, I Absolutely. think that there's, you have you to know, judge. Like the, I mean, you how... have to judge. Let me let me let me offer this as a way to go as a direction forward. I think one thing to think about judgmental attitudes and so on and the dangers of judgment and being judgmental is to think not just about what judgment is judging or what it's reacting to, but where you're getting by judging, like looking forward. What is judging getting you? Yeah. What's it going to produce? What direction does it move us in? There's lots of kinds of judgings which get you, put you in a bad direction of suppressing creativity, bullying, manipulating, squelching creativity and originality. Yeah. There's some kinds of judgments which are... And others, uh, you know, and, yeah. And, yeah, and othering people and squashing... I think othering is a, good yeah. thing, is a good... Thanks for bringing that up, because I was thinking, one of the things I don't like about judging is I don't like feeling that I'm on my high horse and the rest of humanity is below me. I do yeah, not like yeah, that feeling. Yeah. You know what? And I don't think it's good good for me as well as not being good for them obviously if i have any power let's take our second break okay and we'll come right back to this okay that welcome back. We have Andy Richter here, and we're addressing the question, is it bad to judge? Um, and Andy brought up this word othering. And I was thinking, one of you know, sometimes people make the the dichotomy between 
the law and love. Um, and I think it's kind of anti-Semitic. I don't necessarily buy it, but there is something there. Explain is, that a little bit, because I don't understand the difference between law and love and that being anti-Semitic. Okay, so law, I believe, is a translation for Torah. Oh. And the people who were... Um, so Christianity started as a sort of like a Jewish movement. Yeah. Um, and the Christians said, well, we have this teacher, Jesus, and he's sort of God or he's like God, and we're basing our lives on him. And they criticized the people who were the rabbis at the time, and they called them Pharisees. So the rabbis sort of had this idea that you can figure out the rules for living a righteous life. And it included things like that, which is hateful to your, to yourself. Don't do to somebody else. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, but it got pretty, it got into some sort of minutiae. Like um, if you discover a coat and you both discover it at the same time, what are you supposed to do? So there was the idea that you can kind of think this out and there's a criticism against this, which is like, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't think so much. You should basically love people and don't, judge them and don't go around using the law to oppress them and it, and it was sort of an intra-jewish fight mm -hmm. when it all started and then uh when jews became sort of a persecuted minority there was a um uh, there's a sort of trope that jews don't have any love all they do is just look at the rules and I punish see. people it's not fair to rabbinic judaism even a little but i think it's an interesting question which is like if you have your rules about what it is to be a, a good person, does that mean you're going to other the person who breaks the rules rather than love them, rather yeah. than see where they're coming from in a kind of curious, open-hearted way? Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's one uh, somewhere in the Gospels, whether Jesus said this or not, actually, because Jesus was part of this Jewish messianic movement. And then at some point, stuff got attributed to him that he didn't say. So I don't know whether he said this or not. But one of the things that I always thought was quite profound and sort of maybe uh, straddles this dichotomy between the Jewish movement and the later anti-Semitic versions of the love idea is that he said the the commandment, love your neighbor, is the important one. And mm. I don't know if he said you can forget all the others. I, it was something more like all the others are contained in that. That's the only one you sort of need to know. Well, Hillel said that. Hmm? Hillel, who was one of the biggest rabbis in the movement that the Christian New Testament calls the Pharisees, um, said that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor, is the whole Torah. Oh, interesting. The rest is commentary, or he said, now go and study. I didn't know that. This was a famous story where there, there, were, two, there were two frenemies. I mean, actually, they were good friends, but they uh -huh. took the opposite side on issues named uh, Hillel and Shammai. Um, and a, a Gentile went to Shammai and said, can you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot? And Shammai chased him away with some piece of like serving equipment, <laughs> like to hit him on the head. Um, so then, uh. so then he went to Hillel and he said, can you teach me the essence of the Torah while I stand on one hmm. foot? And he said, sure. That which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Interesting. Now go wow. and study. And when did he say that? What is this? Is this pre- Pre-Jesus or post-Jesus or? Oh, it was lunchtime, obviously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was a ladle sitting around. It was part of the same Second Temple Judaism, the first century AD. Okay. So maybe Jesus was saying something, if he said that, that wasn't particularly revolutionary, that was already precedented. But that's great. I think whoever said it uh, was onto something right and good, I think. 
Uh, mm-hmm. There's also a distinction people make between the laws of Moses and then the rest of the Torah, which is a lot of these dietary restrictions and the Sabbath and all that law stuff. There's two different laws. Paul thought that everybody should follow the basic commandment laws because those are just the sort of morally right. But if you want to be Christian, you can sort of forget about all the rest of the stuff which only Jews have to worry about. Let, let's the three of us sort of take a look at where we arrived here. It seems like we're saying that... Um... Because I'm actually, Andy, hearkening back to your example of the person who judges the shoplifter and the person who's judging them has a full belly and mm-hmm. has never been hungry and the shoplifter is starving. Yeah. There's clearly something wrong there. Yeah. That you're not loving the person who has broken the rule. And maybe you can say like, look, we understand why we have the rule and we're basically pretty much okay with the rule. We're not repealing the rule but we're going to look with an eye of love and mercy towards the people who break it. Yeah. And also it's not, it's not happening in a laboratory. It's happening in a very imperfect world where somebody with a full belly is benefiting from this structure of laws. And there's somebody with an empty belly who is not. Yeah. So they, they truly are not in the same game, you know? And so it is, Again, I say it's like it's such a I mean, and I'm not a philosopher, but it's such a heavy thing because there again, it is it's a case by case basis. And yes, it's wrong to steal, but that would really work best if we all had the same amount of stuff. Yeah, that would really work great if we all had the same amount of need and the same amount of material possessions or spiritual fulfillment or or, Mm -hmm. or whatever you count as, you know, the quantifiable good thing of life. I think it is a kind of natural fact about the organism that human beings find it very easy to be hypocrites. They find it very easy to judge outwardly and not to be reflective. And I think that's just a fact about the structure of thought and perception. It's not easy to turn your gaze back on yourself and apply the same standards. So I think what we have to have is a constant check against that kind of hypocrisy, that people are not aware of the vulnerability of their own position when they judge. It's so easy to look past that. Yeah. I find it very hard to remember my transgressions. Yeah. Like, I'll think, like, I'm very fair when I read people's scripts. <laughs> I don't I don't read people's scripts in a, in a yeah. you know, a superficial way. I realize someone really cared about it. And, I'll, and I can absolutely believe that. And then I'll be like taking a shower. I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> I've been completely superficial about someone's script because, you know, and I'll just remember, oh, yeah, what about that? And it's like, but I forgot it. So at the time that I'm saying that I never do the bad thing, it's like to remember my own behavior accurately takes a lot of work. Yeah. Like it doesn't come naturally. It's not the easiest thing in the world to remember my own humiliating defeats morally. (laughs) But here's where I find there's a kind of liberating thought buried in this, though, which I'm fascinated by, which is this. The second step in that line of thought is to, first of all, you think, oh my gosh, what I must sound like to people, or remembering something I said, and I think, oh, that was obnoxious, and I was really overlooking these other things, and Mm -hmm. it was easy for somebody else to look at me and think, wow, what a jerk, and is he's making this mistake and that mistake and now but then the next thought is well who are they after all because 
You can be tyrannized by other people's judgment if you buy into the fact that they are invulnerable, that they are speaking from a sort of pulpit from which they're not subject to the same kind of thing. So the fact that moral yeah. judgment turns into a kind of, once you realize how reciprocal it is by nature, and that nobody is in a kind of especially privileged position in principle, that's a little bit like a secularized version of this idea, don't judge because God will judge. In a way, it, it re- reminds you that if you don't believe in God, you think nobody has that privileged position. And that's kind of freeing because then you can think uh, it's very good to recognize your own frailty and the limits of your own vision and to be self-critical. And it's also possible then not to be tyrannized by other people's judgment because you realize that they are in exactly the same position you are. So I, I kind of find this, like I say, a kind of freeing realization that moral life is messy and complex and we're all kind of in the same boat and nobody is God. Mm. So, so what is it? Yeah. So when I get angry at um, Elizabeth Holmes, I'm like, what a jerk. She's contemptible. Why would you go and try and raise money yeah. by lying to people? What should I do instead? Should I be like, I sometimes get high on my own supply. I might do that. Um, I probably wouldn't do it as far as she did. But, you know, and then also I'll sometimes be in a group of people where we're all jumping in. And then like, I mean... You know what it's like with the creative project is at a certain point, you all are on the same team. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to say, if someone says, hey, that show you're working on, I think it sucks. You kind of want to say, shut up, because you're supporting your team. Um, And I'm sure something like that entered into Elizabeth Holmes's mind. Once she had raised that money, she felt it was her job to lie to herself. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she probably thought of herself as someone with an empty stomach. Yes. You know, she had a she had a neurotic emptiness that she was filling mm-hmm. and she was seeing all these people that she was asking for money the same way that that shoplifter mm-hmm. doesn't care about the people with full bellies, right. you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true, but now that we know that, how do we go when we're sort of like, hey, Elizabeth Holmes ripped off a lot of people, might have caused some people to think they had AIDS when they didn't or vice versa. <laughs> I don't remember the details. I, I think one thing that occurs to me is that it's important not to get too much perverse gratification from either other people's suffering or from their wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And let me give you two examples. So I didn't know much about the Elizabeth Holmes case uh, before watching this documentary about her. And just reading the headlines, I had this queasy feeling of like, maybe she was just doing what everybody was doing mm-hmm. and she got caught yeah. and she was unlucky, but there's not much difference. And then I watched this documentary about her. She's a total sociopathic creep who is lying about everything from the beginning. Yeah. And so my sympathy drained away very quickly. And then what was I left with? Not a feeling of gratification or superiority, but just a, a kind of nausea. It was so stomach turning to see what she did so consistently from the beginning to the end. I got a little bit of schadenfreude out of the documentary. Okay. I was a little bit like... Did you? I was happy yeah, to I see think... her fall. People like that annoy me. Uh, boy, I wasn't. I think you should be cautious <laughs> okay. about indulging in the schadenfreude. Okay. So my personal reaction was that, okay, I've heard enough of this, and I really don't want to hear any more. And she got what she deserved. 
and and I'm, I don't take any pleasure in it. In other words, I reconciled myself to the outcome because I thought this is what you have to do with people like this. You have to convict them and put them away. Yeah, I mean, like so she, she like goes to jail, but you dog. can have empathy. Shooting a rabbit. You can have dog. empathy. For yeah, you can her, have empathy. But she needs to and go to jail. It's tragic and it's sad and it's kind of disgusting. It's not like I didn't think of her as the devil in this horrible thing. I thought, in a way, yeah, I did. Actually, you're right because there was a follow-up story when she was out on bail or before she'd been sentenced, where she, somebody met her in you know California and she was dressed in, you know, sweatpants and she looked, you know, worn out and depressed and I kind of thought what a what a waste of a life, right? Yeah. So but let me give you a counter case, total opposite. And I don't want to give the details because I don't want to confess too much maybe unwarranted sympathy. But there were some people, you know, these videos that are so they pull you in and the real life crime kind of trial things. And these people had murdered someone. It was awful. Mm -hmm. And they thought they were doing the right thing because they thought they were protecting the neighborhood from, you know, a dangerous guy who was running around the neighborhood and they were going to catch him. And they went after him with a shotgun and they wound and he fought back and then they shot him. You probably have probably given away enough details. People know the case. They were completely guilty, no doubt about it, and they all got life sentences, as they ought to. But there was part of me that was also, unfortunately, maybe, but maybe fortunately, I don't know if it's a good thing or bad thing, I could sort of see it through their eyes only in this sense that they sincerely believed they were in the right. They really, they really did not understand the horribleness of what they set out to do, which is to sort of chase this guy down armed with a shotgun. You really think they didn't, though? I... Um, we all know it's not right to chase down someone with a shotgun. I, I mean, you and I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they thought they were... I mean, it was definitely vigilantism. Yeah. I, I mean, I, my mind is so divided because I really think it was totally grotesque and horrendous and evil. But my problem was, maybe it's that I grew up in Wyoming with guns and people with guns and people with this kind of Wild West kind of... And, and fears of outsiders. Yeah, and fear of outsiders. And, and, I, and the way they talked about it, one of these guys was a former cop. I almost wish I didn't have this degree of empathy, but I could see that they really thought they were the victims. And now it was sickening because I had a more of a sort of sense of, um, man, you would have had to get them years in advance and talk them out of this way of thinking and seeing the world to have avoided this because they were totally committed to this yeah. attitude which had this utterly catastrophic result. And I'm not saying they weren't to blame, but that kind of empathy is very uncomfortable and that made me even more sick to my stomach. I really didn't want to know well, any more about it. I have, and I mean, it's it's sort of a trope among the superhero world that Magneto was right. I agree with Magneto, you know, that like the, <laughs> uh, uh -huh, we, uh. we uh, mutants are a, a yeah. higher breed. We are being hunted yeah. like dogs. We are, you know, they're mm. trying to exterminate us. So, uh, you know, why not fight back and why not? And yeah. if you, you know, in, in you know, we are, we are evolved. Yeah. And do, doesn't the evolved species get to get, get to push against the unevolved species, <laughs> right. which is all right. just like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all just it's yeah. all Nazism. It's Aryan super, you know, power. It's, you know, it's Keimer Rouge. It's it's all it's ev it's the beginning of every totalitarian, you know, yeah. genocidal kind of kind of uh, area of thought. But yet, I every time I've ever seen those movies, I'm like, yeah, Magneto's got a point. Yeah, the, you know, these, these worms yeah. are trying to kill these gods, and you know. And I guess what I think is in both cases, in Elizabeth Holmes and in this case, I think 
the best attitude, and I guess it's the one I kind of had, it's not comfortable. The best attitude with both was just disgust and depression. Yeah. They both belong in prison. Yeah. So amusement, you're not down with amusement. <laughs> I'm against I'm against it. Against yeah. it. Well, I, I, what we were talking about a minute ago made me think about, you know, in terms of that in order to keep our kind of own humility and, and keep our own place in righteousness, that we cannot judge others. But that puts people in our industry out of business because right. you need to see the villain get his comeuppance mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. We yeah, need course. to see that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to see that, you know? I guess I, I would say if I can be sententious, like, yes, you can find it ridiculous and funny that Elizabeth Holmes speaks in a fake right. voice and, and claims to have a pet wolf and it's really a dog. Like, like you can find that funny but you should find yourself funny too. And I agree with you that it's she's funny when she's at the top and she's talking in her fake voice and she has a pet dog that's really a wolf in her fake voice. Like, <laughs> like that's funny. But at the point that she's been humbled, I don't like that. I don't like going and making fun of her in her sweats. So yeah. Yeah. Leave her alone. Yeah. I, I mean, right. Exactly. Her. This is why I think like, like where does judgment get you? If you're judgmental enough to catch the awful people and confine them and put them out of commission. And then you don't have to judge anymore. You don't have to keep judging. Yeah. The right. We want to have an immune system, but we don't want to have an immune system that like an autoimmune disease. Like, right. like yeah. we want to be able hyperactive. To, yeah. 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 To me, when exactly. you pose this topic and I was thinking about where judgment lives for me in a comfortable way, is in an internalized way mm -hmm. where I can have all my judgments I want, but they live within this jar of my head, which I have to constantly remind myself is its own universe. And it cannot become my, you know, it cannot become my law book, uh, what happens in my head. Hmm. So I'm constantly judging other people's behavior in order for it to be a mirror that I put up to myself. Uh -huh. Can you give an example? When did you judge someone else's behavior and it was a mirror that you put up to yourself? Oh, gosh. Um, mm, I got, I'm trying to think of a good one. I'm blanking. Give me a second. We can you said you were here. constantly doing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, let me let me think. Um, well, you know, I, I recently got remarried and I remarried somebody that had a little kid. So I have a three-year-old now after having, I have two adult children and a three-year-old and I have a very different perspective on parenting now because I've been through the entire span of raising a child <laughs> to adulthood. Yes. So every, which just makes every, it makes molehills out of mountains basically mm -hmm. with it, from mm -hmm. the perspective of other parents. And I will see, Sometimes, I, I, you know, I mean, I go to the playground and I see these fathers with just these thousand yard stairs that look like they're thinking, oh, my God, is this <laughs> is this the rest of my life, this tedium and stress? And <laughs> and, uh, and I will sometimes see people like if I see someone lash out angrily towards their children, um, it makes me reflect upon the times that I do it and mm -hmm. that I still can do it. Mm -hmm. And it creates a system within me to remember, to keep, I always like to say, don't, 
don't shake your bucket around so much that you slosh your stuff on other people. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean mm-hmm. that with my children too, like just cause I'm angry, make sure that I keep it about the kid. Cause the mm-hmm. primary directive is to raise the child mm-hmm. and is to make a healthy, happy human being. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so I see other people's anger towards their children coming out. And I realize I do that too sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I need to stop doing that myself. Now, I have empathy for those people. Mm-hmm. I have, and I am judging. I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, take it easy. You know, that's a little kid you're yelling at. And this isn't about, you're not helping. Like, you can't say, I'm ensuring this child is raised correctly right now. You're just being angry at, at like, in a very unfair fight, you know. Yes. Yep. Um, and and so that, I guess that would be, you know, one of the examples yeah, of that's it, cool. you know. That's a cool example. What do you think, Taylor? Do you have any final words on this? Oh, um, judgment is unavoidable and dangerous. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You got to, yeah, you got to, it has its place. Right. And, and it needs to be kept in check. Yeah. But as you said, it'll never go. We can't stop. We can't stop looking at a sunset and going, that's beautiful. And then realize we're standing in a mud puddle and going, well, this is shitty. Right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, and, we can't just yeah. go like, well, this mud puddle is as gorgeous as the sunset or the sunset is as shitty as the puddle. You know, it's going to be or, there. Yeah, like once we're dead, we'll have plenty of time to do that. Yes. Like to not express an opinion about the worm eating our head and all that. Right. Moldering. And I'll go back to what may be a reflection of my Puritan roots. Oh, you're like, as long as you don't enjoy it, you judge all you want, right? Yeah. Well, yes. In a way, <laughs> in a way I really do think that um, when you do have to judge, try not to get some kind of perverse pleasure from it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so here, here's to. why I'm making fun of that a little bit, because I think yeah, yeah. people desire safety. And in nine times out of 10, or maybe 10 times out of 10, where I find myself judging, it's because somehow that other person's behavior is making me feel unsafe. Yeah. Now, right. it could be for some crazy neurotic reason that I'm like, you know, I'm, uh, I, I wish all the prizes went to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I feel like less than if I don't get the prizes. So then when I see the person with the prize, I'm like, they stole that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, that's an offense to me. <laughs> yeah. That's an offense yeah. to me that that person is walking around with all that ill-gotten love <laughs> or success yeah. or money. And, and that's and I think the feeling of suddenly feeling that you're safe is going to feel good. Yeah. I guess here's the thing: is like I'm sitting down here and like, like I'm I'm eating my my nachos and and someone says, "Why aren't you like Elizabeth Holmes? She's got a billion-dollar company. She's beautiful." A wolf dog. He's got a wolf dog. She's got this cool voice. Um, why aren't you like her? Right? So I'm feeling pretty bad. And then when I find out, wait a second, I don't need to feel uh-huh. bad. She's actually a thief. And I'm not a thief. So I feel pretty good. And that yeah. and that makes me feel better. Um, and, and I'm wondering if how avoidable that is. A little bit is okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess if, if I maybe yeah. I need to just feel better about myself and not hate myself when I see that Elizabeth Holmes is doing well. And, and and that sort of self compassion might be the the um the antidote to this sort of vengeful judging, this vengeful resentful judging. What Nietzsche calls resentiment, right? That's that's bad. Andy a while back said something about moderation or the mean or the the medium, yeah. you know, between. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Um, I believe so. And uh, let me give you one more example from Nietzsche, who hated revenge because. He happened to think revenge and compassion are two sides of the same coin because mm. in revenge, 
I want the other to feel my pain, and in compassion, I want to feel the other's pain. So he thought both of them were very suspicious, and he thought we could probably better do without them, or we should try to overcome them. But one of the things he said about revenge, even though he was very against it, he said a little bit of revenge is more human than no revenge. Interesting. So I, I like that. So I like a little bit of perverse pleasure from the sufferings of the guilty is okay. And you just have okay, to... A little bit, a little a little bit, bit of, of perversity. Is all exactly. right. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly okay. right. Okay. So this week, I know some of you are following at home with the course. Uh, try and be <laughs> a little bit perverse every day, but not too much. Not too much. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for being on the show. I was just, proud to be here. Thanks. This was Thank a good one. You. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.